Hey friends, we are so glad you're here that you click the button and you're in for a great experience today. A very great, <laughs> very experience. great experience. Hey, if you are joining us um, on our podcast uh, or on YouTube, be sure to subscribe. And also we've got a lot of things that are going on here at Christ Community. So make sure to go to our website, go to our events page, the coming up page, see what's going on and find ways that you can get connected. But we hope you enjoyed the message. Hello. It's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm really excited I get to be with you tonight. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Stetson, and yeah, it's really nice to meet you. I'll be out in the lobby after this if you want to say hi. I would love that too. Okay, last month, uh, my wife and I, we got to go to a concert to see one of our favorite artists. His name is Gregory Allen Isakov, and uh, we went to see him at Red Rocks, and the entire night was magical. If you have never been to Red Rocks before, if you approach the amphitheater from the south, the way that you get in is there is this ramp that has been built into the side of this enormous rock that's 300 feet high. It's called Ship Rock because it looks like the bow of a ship coming out of the earth. So you walk up this ramp and it carries you above the ground and you're about 100 feet off the ground near the top and it kind of feels like the earth is carrying you into the sky somehow. You get to the top of the ramp and you turn to go into the amphitheater and when you walk in on either side again are these massive 300 foot rock formations. One is the other side of ship rock that you just came up on and the other is called creation rock and when you're in between these giant monoliths, you become aware of how small you are. Like, we are so small. When you walk in there, it kind of feels like the earth itself is reaching its arms out to embrace you. So my wife and I, we found our seat in the middle of that, and we just sat there. We didn't talk. We couldn't. We just had to kind of take it all in for a moment. And as night fell, layer upon layer of beautiful things started to become uncovered. Uh, Gregory Allen Isakov's music is beautiful in itself, but if you've ever heard his music and you know about this place, you know his music is that place. And that place is his music. And the two of them, they kind of overlapped and blended together like a harmony. And while that was happening, no matter where you looked, there was something beautiful happening. If you look to the left or the right, you saw a ship and creation rock lit up by spotlights towering over you. If you looked directly overhead, you could see the stars coming out at night. If you looked in front of you, you could see the band playing this amazing music. And if you looked beyond the stage, you could see the lights of Denver twinkling in the night. But if you looked all around you, you became aware of the 9,000 people that you were sitting with and you realize all of you came together for the same thing. And all of you have something in common and all of you are experiencing this moment together. The entire night was magical. That was my experience. But in the row in front of us, just to the right, there were these two couples. I think they were in their 50s. And they had never met, 
And they had had a lot to drink, and so they were feeling very social. And they spent the entire night talking to each other as if they were someplace else, as if they were totally unaware of where they were and what was happening around them. And this didn't take anything away from my experience, but when I think about them, I feel sorry for them. And I get frustrated because they missed it and they have no idea what they missed out on. That night was incredible. And not unlike them, there is something that we find ourselves regularly in the midst in that has layers and layers of beauty and meaning to it. Something that shows us how small we are and how big of a thing we are connected into. And many of us, including myself, have been missing it. We've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth that he started. And when he started that church in Corinth, he told them a story about Jesus. On the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he had dinner with them. A lot of people call this the Last Supper. And when he was eating with them, there was a lot of things going on at the same time. Jesus could see into Judas's heart, and he knew that Judas was going to betray him which would lead to Jesus's arrest and execution. He could see into Peter's heart, knew that Peter was going to betray him too. And even though he knew these things were going to happen, instead of running or hiding, instead Jesus decided to have dinner with his friends. And so they're sitting down to dinner, and this was a special dinner because that night was Passover. So this was the Passover feast and the Passover feast is kind of like a ceremony or a ritual. It has specific steps and a specific order. And when you do each step, there's things you're supposed to say and there's things that you're supposed to pray. Like at one point, you're supposed to break bread and say this prayer. And at another point, you're supposed to pass a cup of wine around and say this specific prayer. So they were sitting down for this dinner that they had done as many times as years they have been alive in the exact same way. And it came time for Jesus to break the bread and he broke it, but then he paused. And then he looked up at his disciples and then he said something wrong. He said something he wasn't supposed to say at that point. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, eat it in remembrance of me. And then he passed the bread around the table. And there was silent. And he picked up the cup of wine. And then he said something else that they weren't used to hearing at the Passover meal. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. When you drink this, drink it in remembrance of me. And then he passed the cup of wine around the table. So Paul, he told the church in Corinth this story. And then he taught them to do just as Jesus instructed. He told them when they come together as a church, they should break bread and they should pass a cup of wine around and they should do this in memory of Jesus. So Paul teaches them these things and then he leaves. And after a while, he gets word that when the church of Corinth has been coming together, instead of that, when they've come together, they've been getting drunk and they've been fighting and they've been excluding each other. And so out of frustration, Paul writes to tell them that they are missing it. They are missing out on this thing that is filled with layers and layers of beauty and meaning. They are missing out on this thing that shows them how small they are, but how big of a thing that they are interconnected into. And they are missing it. 
And I believe many of us to a degree have been missing it too. We find this part of the letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 22 go like this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper or communion that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So in Corinth, professions are kind of collected together into these groups called guilds. They're kind of like labor unions. And each guild has a patron god or goddess that they worship. And they do this by once a month coming together for a guild feast. A guild comes together and they have a whole bunch of food and they get really drunk and they do not so great things with each other. And they do this to worship this deity. And I think what might be happening here is Paul comes to Corinth tells these people about Jesus and they put their trust in Jesus and he forms them into a church. And then he encourages them to do something that sounds familiar to get together on a regular basis and share a meal and pass wine around and do this in remembrance of Jesus. And then he leaves and what's probably happening is they're just falling back into the practice that they've always known. They're probably turning communion into a guild feast but it's not just that bad. It gets worse because what was happening is people were getting excluded. The rich, they were bringing all this food and this wine and the poor brought nothing because they have nothing. Nobody's sharing anything with them. So while these people are gorging themselves right next to them, there's people who are starving to death, being ignored. And there's not this sense of unity, this wholeness, The way that they're doing this is causing division. It's doing more harm than good. Like Paul isn't happy about the whole getting drunk thing, but what he seems really upset about is the fact that they are excluding each other. And he tells them because they are excluding each other, what they are practicing is not communion anymore. Like imagine if there was someone who was told about Jesus Someone tells them that Jesus loves them and died for them and has rescued them and has invited them into a new life, just as he has invited everyone to receive this invitation. And so this person, he hears it and he receives this invitation. He accepts it and and his life is transformed. He puts his trust in Jesus. But when he comes to church for the first time, they see everyone participating in this symbolic ritual that symbolizes all of that but they're told for some reason they're not allowed to participate in it. What would that communicate to them? What does it communicate to people when they're told everyone is invited, but when they show up, they find out not everyone is included. Like imagine a group of people throw you a birthday party and you sit at the table and they bring out the cake with candles in it and they sing happy birthday. But when the song is over, someone else blows out the candles And then when they cut up the cake into pieces and start passing it out and you ask for one, 
someone says, oh, I'm sorry, you can't have any. What would that communicate to you? What kind of a birthday party would that be if you are not allowed to participate in the thing that symbolizes it? You may have noticed when you walked in that we're going to be receiving communion together. Now, this isn't true, but what if I told you that we made a mistake and we only had enough communion for 75% of you, but we came up with a solution? We're just going to line up in order of highest income to lowest. What would that communicate? I'm glad you're not laughing at that idea. If just the suggestion of the idea of that causes just kind of this reaction of anger inside of you, good. That is the appropriate reaction to that scenario. Because communion represents the core of what we believe. Jesus' love and sacrifice and invitation has been extended to everyone and anyone. So if we practice communion in a way that excludes a follower of Jesus, it's no longer communion anymore because it's no longer representing the thing that it is meant to symbolize. And so out of frustration, Paul writes the Corinthians to tell them this. But then I think it's out of love that he goes on to teach them how they could experience the fullness of what communion is meant to be. And so he starts by reminding them of where communion comes from. This is verse 23 through 27. He said this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. At the Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup, he did those things to symbolize something real. His body really was broken. His blood really was poured out. His death really happened. When we participate in communion, we are publicly proclaiming this is real. This really happened. When we do this, we do it to remember the very real thing that it represents. When we participate in communion, it's kind of like we're reenacting the Last Supper, but it's not like a play. It's something deeper than that because the Bible talks about communion as this spiritual experience where when we do it, we aren't just remembering something, we're stepping into it somehow. Like in the past chapter, in chapter 10, Paul said, when we eat the bread, we are participating in the body. When we drink the cup, we are participating in the blood. It's as if when we are receiving communion, we are stepping back into the Last Supper, into the crucifixion itself. In Judaism, this is called making zikron. It's this idea that if you remember something by 
practicing it ritually, you are causing that thing to become present again so that you can participate in it. But this isn't just about communion causing us to step back, but communion causes something to step forward. Jesus comes forward. Like, for example, in the Catholic faith tradition, there are many people who believe that in communion, Jesus physically comes forward into the, into the bread and into the cup. And regardless of what you think about that, my point is those beliefs come from the fact that the Bible talks about communion as something far more significant than just a ritual and a symbol that causes us to remember but communion causes us to step into the reality of what it represents. Like in verse 27, Paul talks about the bread and the cup as if when we are holding it, it's like we are holding the body of Jesus in our hands and we should take it that seriously. When we participate in communion to remember the real thing that it represents, we're not just remembering, it causes us to step into the reality of the thing that it represents. A bunch of years ago, uh, I read this book by a Catholic priest. His name is Ronald Rawlheiser. And for 37 years, almost every single day, he served communion to his congregation. And so naturally in doing that, he discovered layer and layer of beautiful and meaningful thing from the practice, and he wrote a book about it. It's called Our One Great Act of Fidelity. It's incredible. And in that book, he wrote this. What communion makes present is not an icon of Christ to be adored or even consumed, but the reality of Christ's dying and rising as an event within which we are invited to participate when we practice communion to remember the real thing it represents, it can cause us to step into the reality of the thing that it is symbolizing. If this sounds a little out there, confusing. I think most of us have probably experienced something like this before. Like, have you ever lost someone who you were really, really close to? And to remember them, you reenacted something that they used to do. Like maybe you went to their favorite restaurant and sat at their table, or you did their favorite activity, or you learned how to do something that they were really good at, or you wore a piece of clothing that used to belong to them. Now, when someone else would, if someone else did those things who didn't know this person, it wouldn't make any difference. It wouldn't have any kind of impact. But when you do that to remember this person, something powerful happens. When we do that, it's as if we are stepping back into the memory in which that person is still alive. In a way, it feels like that person is also coming forward and they are present and they are there. When I was a kid, when my mom tucked me in at night, she would stand at the foot of the bed and she would hold on to the end of the blanket and she would do this thing where she threw her arms out and she flicked her wrists and the blanket unfurled and spread out and then just floated down right on top of me. It was awesome. She's gone now, but when I tuck my kids into bed at night sometimes, they say, can you do the thing that grandma in heaven used to do? And I still can't do it as well as she could, but I grab the end of the blanket and I throw my arms out and I flick my wrists 
and the blanket unfurls and it floats down almost perfectly flat on top of them. When I am doing that, there are so many things happening in that moment. When I do that, I am proclaiming to my kids that their grandma who they've never met is real. And I'm proclaiming to myself that this memory of my mom is real. But I'm not just remembering it. It's as if as I am stepping back into my childhood through my kids and getting tucked in again. But it's also as if my mom has come forward and she is tucking my kids in through me. It's like she's there. When we step into communion, when we practice communion intentionally, to remember the very real thing that the bread and the cup represent. What can happen is something like this, but even more so in a spiritually charged way, because the Bible talks about it as this holy practice that causes us to step into the reality of the thing that it represents. And when we experience something like that, when we do this to really remember, it can cause us to realize what this means to us, or at least it should, which is why Paul says this in the next verse, verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In this whole letter of 1 Corinthians, if you've been with us from the beginning, we see how divided of a community that this is, not just Corinth, but the church in Corinth too. And it's because They are swept up in this constant status competition. Everyone trying to one-up each other, being better than each other. Who's the richest? Who is the most powerful? Who is the smartest? But to counter that here, Paul is saying, before we receive communion, we need to take a really good look at ourselves. Because when we do, it leads to the question, am I receiving this because there's something really special about me? Am I receiving this because I've deserved it somehow? Now, I don't think Paul is saying we need to go down this road of beating ourselves up for everything wrong we've ever done and making ourselves feel like terrible people. But there is something that we do need to see. At the Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup and said, this is for you, he wasn't talking about anyone individually. He was saying, this is for you, all of us, including you, and you, including all of us. And then when he passed the bread around the table, he even passed it to the two people that were going to betray him that night, even them. These things show us that what communion represents is pure grace. It is not deserved. It is simply a gift what Jesus did for you, he did for you, but it wasn't because of you. It was because of him. It was because of the endless love that he has for you, the endless amount of grace that he has for you. Does Jesus love you? Yes, more than you can possibly imagine. But that's just it. He loves you. That's it. That's why he died for you. That's why he rescued you, because he loves you. In communion, it's important that we take a really good look at ourselves, because when we do, 
in contrast, in comparison to the thing that this symbolizes, we start to realize, I didn't earn this. I don't deserve this. There's no transaction going on here. This is a gift. And when we realize that what this is, is a gift, it causes us to appreciate it on a whole different level. When you go to buy a cup of coffee or a burrito and you walk out the door, you don't really think much of it. But if you were to buy a cup of coffee or a burrito and the person on the other side of the register just randomly said, you know what, don't worry about it. This one's on us. Have a nice day. If you've experienced that before, what's that like? Like for me, it's like my brain shuts down because it's trying to calculate why, but there is no why. It's just a gift. Logic and transaction has nothing to do with it. And when you walk out the door, you feel the weight of the thing that you're holding. You see the value of the cup of coffee and the burrito. You appreciate it on a whole other level when it is a gift instead of something that you've paid for. Have you ever been out to eat and find out someone has anonymously paid for your meal? What happens to your meal in that moment? There's no longer a meal on your table. There's a miracle on your table. You experience the true value of what's in front of you. You appreciate it on a whole other level. Every once in a while, I see a therapist. It's really helpful. And when I do, I pay him because that's his livelihood. That's how he puts food on the table. This is good, and I'm happy to do it. But there was this one day, and I feel like I've told this story before, but maybe not. There was this one day where I ran into a friend of mine who's also a therapist. And she said, how you doing? And she caught me on a really hard week. And I responded something like, you know, I know this is your job, and I don't want to take advantage of that. But my answer to your question is pretty heavy. And without hesitation, she invited me to sit down and tell her all about it. I really appreciate my therapist, but I can't begin to quantify how much I appreciated my friend in that moment. The concert that my wife and I went to at Red Rocks, we were there because some very dear friends of ours gave us the tickets to go as a gift. And everything beautiful that we experienced was amplified and shimmered. Because in the back of our minds, the whole time, we knew every single thing we were experiencing was a gift. In that book on communion written by Ronald Rollheiser, he wrote another thing. He said, to properly receive anything, including life itself, requires that we recognize it precisely as a gift, as something undeserved. To properly receive anything, including life itself, requires that we recognize it precisely as a gift, as something undeserved. And the same thing is true for communion. To properly receive communion requires that we recognize it precisely as a gift, as something undeserved. When we enter into communion intentionally to remember the very real thing that it represents. It can cause us to step into the reality of it, not just the memory of it. 
And when we step into communion, realizing what it is, it's a gift. It causes us to appreciate it on a whole other level that we couldn't before. But if we were to stop here, I think according to this passage, according to Paul, it still wouldn't be communion yet because we're still missing a key piece, something we often miss. It's this thing that causes communion to truly come alive. But what's cool is everything that we've been talking about up to this point is what gives us the ability to see the thing that we've been missing. Each other. Look at the the last part of this passage. Paul says this. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, that's us, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. At the beginning of this passage, Paul tells them because they've been excluding each other, what they're doing is not communion. And at the end, he tells them when they come together to experience communion, they should do it together because communion is meant to be experienced together. Again, at the Last Supper, when Jesus passed the bread and the cup and said, this is for you, he wasn't talking about anyone individually. He was saying, this is for you. This is for us, including you. And you, including all of us. Communion represents the love and the sacrifice and the invitation that is offered to everyone and anyone. So if we practice communion in a way that excludes each other, it's not communion anymore. But this is about something far deeper than just not excluding each other. This is about intentionally including each other. He says we need to discern the body of Christ. We need to wrap our minds around the fact that all of us are united in Jesus. All of us are connected and come together into this whole called the body of Christ. Communion was never meant to be this individualized thing. It was always meant to be this communal meal that brought us together so that we could see how big of a thing this represents and what all of us are a part of. When I see this and hear this, it makes me feel like I've been missing out. Like I haven't been excluding anyone, but I will be the first person here to admit that when we've practiced communion together, I haven't been thinking about any of you. I've just been thinking about me and Jesus and our relationship. And that's fine. But according to this, that is a limited perspective. And that is a limited experience of what communion is meant to be. And I've been missing it. But after this, I'm not going to miss out on that anymore. Because when we intentionally enter into communion together with an awareness of each other, it causes us to realize just how big of a thing this represents. Jesus didn't die for just me. It's far better than that. Jesus died for us. 
Jesus didn't rescue just me. It's far better than that. Jesus rescued us. Jesus didn't adopt just me. It's far better than that. He adopted us. When we are aware of each other, it causes us to see this gift that he has offered to me is also offered to you. Because just as he loves me to the same degree he loves you, and just as his spirit is inside of me, he is also inside of you. When we see this, it causes us to become unified together. When you are in a group picture and you're looking at that picture, who do you look at? You, right? We all do this. That's human. What communion does is it gives us the ability to see everyone else in the picture and allows us to see the bigger picture that all of us are a part of. Because when we remember the very real thing this represents, and we step into the reality of it, and we recognize it for what it is, it's a gift. These things, they have this humbling effect that bring us down to the same level, because that's where we were at in the first place. And it's when we're there at the same level, and we recognize that, when we're there, that's when we're able to really recognize each other and see what we are connected into. When this happens, that's when dividing walls come down. That's when divisions disappear. That's when unity starts to come in. And that's when we start to get formed into the thing Jesus always intended us to be. The body of Christ. This is the true power of communion. Not that it just symbolizes the very real thing that is a gift that has been offered to us, but it also shows us truly how big of a gift that was to all of us and how all of us are connected together into something. Over a thousand years ago, there was this bishop. He's known as St. Augustine. And it's said that when he would serve communion to someone for the very first time, he would say something different. Normally, he would hold out the bread and say, the body of Christ. But when it was their first time, he would hold out the bread, look them in the eye, and say, receive what you are the body of Christ. I think the most powerful experience I've ever had of this was four years ago when uh, Pastor KJ and I, we led this experimental church service on Sunday nights. And we did a whole bunch of different things, uh, but we always arranged the room in the same way. In the center of the room, there was a table, and on the table was a piece of bread or a loaf of bread and a cup. And we would arrange the chairs in a circle, all of them facing the table. And we would tell everyone there that we did this because the table represents what brought us all together. And this is the central focus of why we're here. Jesus is the central focus of why we're here. And we've arranged the chairs in this way so that we could all be focused on it, but so we could also see each other. So we could look past the table and see the thing that the table connects us to each other into the body of Christ. And each night we would do something a little bit different, but we would always end the night the same way. We would receive communion together, but we did this really intentionally. We told them we had one rule, you can't take it because communion doesn't represent something that was taken. This was something that was received. 
So we told them whoever gets to the bread first, they can't take it. The only thing that they can do is hold it out to somebody else so that they can receive a piece of it. Same with the cup. You can't force your hand into the cup. It has to be held out to you so you can dip your piece of bread into it. And so we would pass the bread around until everyone had received a piece and the cup would be held out to everyone until everyone had gotten the chance to dip the bread. And when we did this, something powerful happened. I remember the first night just being a little dumbstruck, like what is happening? And I couldn't quite pinpoint what it is until I read and studied this. Now I think I know what it is. We became aware of each other. When we practice communion in that way, if you wanted to receive communion, you were dependent upon someone holding it out to you. And if you were holding the bread, people will come up to you dependent on you to hold it out to them. Same with the cup. And when you held out the bread for someone to receive a piece, there was a moment where the two of you held it at the same time. And in that moment, you realized that you were linked by what you were holding represented. When we started doing this, we bought loaves of bread from King Supers. But a few weeks in, there was these three college girls that offered to bake the bread for us every week. When you ate it, you knew who it came from. The bread itself was a gift. There was a man who had grapes growing in his backyard, and so he picked them and made grape juice. When you dipped the bread and ate it, you knew where it came from. The juice itself was a gift. They did this because they started to realize communion wasn't for them. It was for us. When we become aware of each other, when we practice communion, it causes us to see the full breadth of the magnificent thing that it represents. How big Jesus's love and sacrifice and rescue plan is. And it also causes us to recognize each other as part of a whole. It causes us to realize that we are all interconnected into the body of Christ together. In communion, when we press into it to remember the very real thing it represents, it causes us to step into the reality of it. In communion, when we recognize it precisely as a gift, it causes us to appreciate it on a level we didn't beforehand. And in communion, when we become aware of each other, we see how big of a thing it truly is. And we see what we are connected into. In communion, we are remembering and receiving and becoming the body of Christ. Let's pray. At this point in the service, we've been practicing starting this prayer in a very deliberate way. If you're able to, would all of you stand together? And if you feel comfortable, we've just been holding our hands open in a posture of receiving and praying this prayer that's been prayed for a very long time, inviting the Holy Spirit to come before we say anything or ask any questions or, or start singing songs. The very first thing that we do is we just give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak and do what he wants to do. So let's just take a moment silently And give him space to do what he wants to do. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you please come?
Jesus, these tables in front of us filled with the bread and the cup, thank you for the very real thing that they represent. Thank you for coming to rescue us. Thank you for doing what you did to rescue us. Jesus, the longer that we discover what it is to really follow you, the bigger and bigger the reality of that gets. It becomes wider, deeper, and higher, and farther than we previously thought. Jesus, thank you for an opportunity to come together like this and remember these things, see these things, and experience the reality of these things. So Jesus, everything left that we have to do tonight, we do knowing that your presence is here. Friends, thank you so much for tuning into that message. I I love Setson. Like, he's just so gifted. And and here's what I know. Coming out of a message like that, um, for me, there's always something stirring in my heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that that if I'm not with somebody to talk to about that, like, that stuff inside of me, it doesn't really go anywhere. And so we want to let you know that um, if if you're here and you're like, man, like, this just did something to me. I need to talk to somebody. Uh, If you head over to our website, which is cccgreeley.org, there's a little button at the bottom that says connect with us. If you click on that, literally within minutes, you will be connected to one of our pastoral staff who would love to be able to talk with you, to pray with you, and to point you towards any kind of a resource you need.